Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Worship at Belhelvey. It's great that you can join us this morning. Uh, I've got the shades on because as I'm recording today, uh, the weather's absolutely beautiful outside. Spring has sprung. The only problem is we haven't yet been sprung from the confines of our homes, but hopefully it won't be too long. Uh, as we wait, it's good that we can join with one another in worship. Um, a warm welcome to everybody uh, from around not just our parish, but uh, different corners of the world. I know that some of you have said that uh, this is like a wee taste of home for you while you're away. So it's great that you can join in uh, with worship wherever you are and um, wherever you are in your, your own faith journey as well. You're more than welcome this morning. We're going to begin our service today by singing a modern setting of the 23rd Psalm, The Lord's My Shepherd. join our hearts together in prayer now. Let us pray. Before the world began, one word was there. Grounded in you he was, rooted in care. By him all things were made. In him was love displayed. Through him you spoke and said, I am for you. 
Life found in him its source, death found its end. Light found in him its course, darkness its friend. For neither death nor doubt nor darkness can put out your holy glow, the shout, I am for you. The word was in the world, which from him came. Unrecognised he was, unknown by name. One with all humankind, with the unloved aligned. Convincing sight and mind, I am for you. All who received the word by you were blessed. Sisters and brothers, they of earth's fond guest. So did the word of grace proclaim in time and space and with a human face, I am for you. God, we bless you for those words this morning and the word to whom they point. The word who was with you in the beginning but chose to become human and live among us out of love for you and your creation. In him, we have your unequivocal promise that you are for us. Proof, if we needed it, that you are on the side of your people, that your love for us and pursuit of us won't be derailed by sin or death because they do not set the agenda. They do not dictate the pace. For your word tells us that there is nothing in all creation, in the realm of spirits or higher powers, in the world as it is, or the world as it shall be, in the forces of the universe, in heights or depths. Nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord God, that you would come to us in Christ, giving him to us in life and death and resurrection before we'd taken one step in your direction. is the greatest testimony we will ever get of your enduring love and your will to save. May we not deal lightly with such a gift. May such a word not fall on deaf ears or calloused hearts. Forgive us if we have domesticated a message that was meant to change the world and robbed it of its power by our lukewarm response. May you break up our hard ground. May the seed of your life find fertile soil in our souls today, growing there and taking root in all that we are and all that we do, that you might be honoured through our living and that people might see something of you in us to your honour and glory. Lord, we make all these prayers in the name of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our reading this morning is taken from John's Gospel, John chapter 20, and reading from verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Bertrand Russell, the father of modern atheism, was once asked what he'd say to God if he died and he found himself standing before the throne of judgment. And his response was, I would say, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? If we only had the evidence, then we'd believe. That's the implication of what Russell is saying. And as a scientist... I know where he's coming from. But I would want to ask another question to Russell in return. And it's this, what kind of evidence do you think you need? Park that thought and we'll come back to it uh, later on. But this whole issue of evidence and belief is one that's very much tied in 
with our story this morning, that of Thomas, as he returns to be with his fellow disciples in the upper room. Thomas is looking for evidence. Evidence that Jesus has risen. And frankly, who can blame him? History hasn't been kind to Thomas. It's labelled him doubting Thomas. But is he any different from anyone else in the story thus far? The disciples are crowded together in a locked room on Easter Sunday evening. They're fearful. At this point, even Peter and John, who had visited the tomb, still don't know what's going on. And it's only when Jesus appears among them and shows them his hands and his side that the amazing truth dawns on them. Death couldn't hold him. He's gone right through death and out the other side. But Thomas isn't there. He misses this encounter, that, that evidence that they got. And he's so low and so torn up by what's happening that he finds it almost impossible to believe what they're telling him. Hadn't they seen Jesus die in the most appalling way? You can hear the bitterness in his voice when he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Thomas wants evidence. Show me the marks. Let me touch them. Then maybe I'll believe Here's what I find really interesting in today's story. Jesus shows up a week later when they're all gathered together and Thomas is there this time. And he says, here I am, Thomas. You wanted to put your fingers into the nail prints. You wanted to put your hand into my side. Now's your chance. Knock yourself out. But does he do it? Well, it seems to me from the text that he doesn't. At least the text certainly doesn't indicate that he puts his fingers into the wounds. I've seen lots of Renaissance art depicting this particular story and all the artists are very keen to show Thomas prodding his finger into the wounds. The text doesn't say that he did so. Jesus invites him to touch the wounds to get the evidence that he said he needed but there's no indication that he did so. Instead, looking at Christ, or maybe with eyes that are downcast, he just says, my Lord and my God. Words that are the most profound confession of faith in all of the four Gospels. He sees Jesus for who he is, his Lord, but also his God incarnate. In that moment, I think Thomas discovers that he doesn't really need the kind of evidence that he thinks he needs. What he needs is an encounter with the risen Christ. And after that, everything else seems to fall into place. 
It's not that evidence doesn't matter. It's that encounter matters more. Blaise Pascal was one of the leading scientists of the 17th century. A brilliant mathematician and also a passionate believer. And after his death in 1662, they found a piece of paper sewn into the lining of his coat which recorded an experience, a spiritual experience, which became the turning point of his life. It just said this. From about half past ten in the evening to about half an hour after midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and scholars. Absolute certainty. Beyond reason. Joy. Peace. Forgetfulness of the world and everything but God. The world has not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. Pascal worked in the world of science. But observation and evidence and measurement were thought to have the last word on everything. But his own experience taught him that science cannot and does not account for everything. Pascal said reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things which are beyond it. It is merely feeble if it does not go as far as to realise that. Put more poetically, he also said, the heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. We are not just rational creatures, though we are. We are also spiritual creatures. We're emotional creatures and we sense truth and we appropriate truth, not just with our minds, but with our hearts and our spirits as well. I'm not arguing that we ditch the mind. I am arguing that truth dawns on us in many ways and not just through our minds. When I came to faith many years ago, I didn't come to believe in Jesus because I had all my questions answered. I came to faith because of my own small way, far less dramatic than Pascal's or Thomas's, I had an encounter with Jesus. No fiery letters in the sky, just a sense of God being there with me. In the immediacy of a couple of hours alone in my room reading John's Gospel. And I knew without question that he was asking me, inviting me to entrust my life to him. And for once, I didn't think about the consequences. And I'm glad that I didn't, because if I had, I would probably still be swithering today. I just went for it. It wasn't a head thing. It was a heart thing. A gut thing. And the thing is, I now know that there's plenty of evidence for faith. Rational arguments 
that can be made to show that this isn't just blind faith, but has a solid foundation in history. And I've rehearsed some of that stuff with my congregation over the years. But as the author Francis Spufford says, more often than not, it's the feelings our faith evokes that come first and are most important in beginning and sustaining a spiritual life. The feelings come first. He says, I assent to the ideas of Christianity because I experience feelings of closeness with God. I don't have the feelings because I assent to the ideas. The feelings come first. And then on the back of those feelings, we come to understanding in our mind. And I wonder with that in mind, are you beginning to see the flaw at the heart of Bertrand Russell's argument? He's arguing that if we just had more evidence, then maybe we would be able to believe. That's certainly his position. The Pharisees saw every miracle that Jesus did. And it didn't convince them. It's hard to be convinced of something in your mind when deep down your heart has already decided that it can't be true. But over and above that, what if the faith that leads us to God begins with heart knowing rather than head knowing? With encounter rather than evidence? What if the act of faith is more like falling in love with someone than solving an equation or balancing a ledger or deciding which side of an argument we're most convinced by? What if the heart has its reasons which reason knows nothing of? It's not all about the mind. Faith often flows from felt experience and Russell wouldn't admit that as having any validity. But the thing is, you can't weigh love or measure beauty or put wonder under a microscope either. Are we saying that those experiences don't count as truthful because they touch the heart and the soul rather than the mind, at least at first? In the world of the theatre and of cinema, they sometimes speak about breaking the fourth wall. And that's when a member of the cast turns and speaks directly to the audience rather than the other folk on stage. It's almost like they're stepping out of the action for a few moments before stepping back in again. And I think that right at the end of today's story, Jesus breaks the fourth wall for us. As he looks over Thomas's shoulder, he's speaking to the people who would first have heard John's gospel when it was written, but he's also speaking to us nearly 2,000 years later today. Have you believed because you've seen me, he says to Thomas. And then he looks past him straight into our eyes and he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe That's us. 
None of us have met Jesus in the flesh the way the disciples did after the resurrection. We might find ourselves wishing that we could have done because it might then be easier to believe. But Jesus says no. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And that's us that he's speaking about. Why have you come to believe if you do as you tune in this morning? Because you found that elusive piece of incontrovertible evidence? Well, maybe, maybe for some of you that's how it was. But I would guess that for most of us, in a way that we'd struggle to define, we had some kind of an encounter with Jesus. Something, or maybe someone, warmed our hearts. Something gave us an an intuition. Something started pulling us back towards God and to the church and back to prayer. Something that we saw or heard made us start wondering if there is some truth in all of this stuff after all. That's how it works. The heart leads and the mind follows because the heart has its reasons which reason knows nothing of so don't be embarrassed if you don't have all the answers to all the difficult questions the truth is nobody does and you need to watch out for those who act like they do what's important is that you know what you know. You know why faith matters to you. You know the difference that it makes in your life. And then once you know, you go and you live it out in all the places where God puts you. He stood in the room with them. He showed them his hands and his side. He breathed the spirit into their lives to empower them. And he said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Amen. We're going to make our prayers for others now and we're using a prayer that's been produced by Christian Aid. Let us pray. For the health workers tending the seriously ill, for the scientists working on a vaccine, for the researchers analysing data and identifying trends, for the media outlets working to communicate truthfully, for the supermarket workers, hygiene and sanitation providers, For the good news stories of recoveries and effective planning. For the singing from balconies by lockdown communities. For the recognition that isolation doesn't need to mean loneliness. For the notes through letterboxes offering help and support. For the internet and telephones and technology that connect the awakened appreciation 
of what is truly important. We thank you, our God. For those who are unwell and concerned for loved ones, for those who were already anxious before this began, for those immune suppressed or compromised, for those vulnerable because of underlying conditions, for those in the most at risk categories, for those watching their income streams dry up. For those who have no choice but to go out to work. For those who are afraid to be home. For those who are more lonely than they've ever been. For those who are bereaved and grieving. Lord, we ask you to be their healer, their comfort and their protection. Be their strength their shield and provision, be their security, their safety and their close companion. And Lord, raise up your church to be your well-washed hands and faithful feet, to be present to the pain, to respond with love in action, even if it has to be for now from a safe distance. Lord, in your mercy, hear these and all the unspoken prayers of our hearts because we ask them all in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is probably a new one to many of you. It's a lovely piece. Uh, those of you who have hymn books, it's number 344 in the hymn book and it's called And Jesus Said... Don't be afraid. Very much picking up on the theme of this morning's service as he visited the disciples in the locked room.
We're going to end our service by singing together hymn number 786 in your hymn books. May the God of peace go with us. <laughs>